All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter two, verses six through 11. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth. It's this, how we live and word and deed reveals the nature of our relationship to God. Let me say that again. How we live in word and deed reveals the nature of our relationship to God. Let me say it a different way. What if I had read how we live in word and deed determines our relationship to God? Is that biblical? No, thank you. It is not. Is that what I just said? No. Let me say it again. How we live in word and deed reveals the nature of our relationship to God. It reveals who and whose we are, and that matters. Now, we're gonna have to untangle some stuff as we go along to make sure we're keeping it in the biblical banks of the river, but we cannot not talk about good works. Paul's gonna do so here. And the reason that he's gonna do so here is because he is brick by brick taking away from the Jewish congregants in the Roman church everything that they think distinguishes them from the Gentiles. Remember last week, he took away, essentially, uh, in some measure, their thought that that their uh, relationship to Abraham was what made them who they are. No, it doesn't. It's an identifier, and it's helpful according to the promises of God, but it had a purpose. They are not to be instruments of condemnation. Instead, they're to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Does that mean that that if we're ambassadors of reconciliation, that we cannot call sin, sin? No, that is the most unloving thing in the world to do. In fact, as I said last week, I'll say it again this week, we, not only should we be the most creative and hopeful people in any given room, but that should be founded on the reality that we take sin seriously, right? Who knows the impact of sin eternally for people better than us? How are they supposed to know? So we should take it seriously in terms of hospitality, in terms of how we love those who are in the process of throwing away their eternity because of sin. We should be delicate with that. It is a fragile circumstance. We should be loving but firm. Both grace and justice are both part of who God is and should be part of who we are. Now, some of you in the room lean to the justice side, okay? We need you. We need you to help us who lean to the grace and loving side stay on the rails because without you, we would choose to protect ourselves from not being loved or liked by them by being overly gracious because it's hard work to love sinful people, is it not? And you justice folks, you desperately need us grace and loving folks so that you don't become first fist of God of Kennesaw. And you keep us from being God loves you whatever of Kennesaw. And so this is where we've got to stay in community with one another and balance each other out and humbly recognize that no one of us contains all of this. In order to be balanced, we've got to have all the parts of the body, right? And when the foot tries to be the whole body, well, it just fumbles into stuff because it ain't got no eyeballs and it can't pick nothing up. It can just kick it down the road, right? And so keep that in mind as we step into this, that Paul is actually trying to unify them and take away what separates them. And one of the ways in which the Jews would have tried to separate themselves is their understanding and practice of the law, but in the wrong way, not the biblical way. He's actually going to get more into this in next week's portion of Scripture. 
But this week, he's just introducing the right orientation of good works. Where should the cart and the horse be? The cart being good works, the horse being Jesus. Now, first question I have for you is very important for the whole rest of this sermon. So, what impact do the words and actions of others have on what you think about them? How many of you find, when you need to confess your sin, and you need to share a prayer request that is of the utmost need to be protected and secure, how many of you go find the church gossip to share that information with? It's going to show up in a prayer request. Is that gossip? Now, if they're supposed to protect that information, and you may say, well, that's kind of a silly example. No, no, no. It's a very pertinent example. Because their behavior, their words and their deeds have affected how you will interact with them, correct? Right? How many of you go find a hypocrite to get advice from? You don't. All right, now let me ask you this. Why would we think the world would engage with us any different than how we engage with each other and the world? Why would we think there's a different standard that our words and deeds do not matter in our calling to be ambassadors, which means to engage with others, to be in community, why would we think that that would have no impact on unity or mission? And you may say, well, I don't think it has no impact. Okay, but then are you taking it seriously for yourself? This is what Paul's gonna call us to this morning. If you would, give your attention uh, to God's word. Did I, I didn't even read it yet, did I? Man. We don't have another service after this. The place is rented all day. Get comfortable. <laughs> he, that's, this is the bad part about doing two services and being old. I can't remember what I've done in which service half the time. <laughs> I'm lucky to be here. He, being God, will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so Paul is picking up here uh, from uh, verse five and he's saying, he being God on the day of judgment will, and this is scriptural, he's quoting Psalm 62 and a number of places. He says, he will render to each one according to his works. Now, for those of us who have struggled with legalism and works, this, is, this makes us real nervous. What's he saying here? Well, what he says after helps to qualify. And it's not that they're, they didn't, they're not being judged as in uh, uh, being saved by their works. No, they're being proved who and whose they are by their works. Now, Jesus deals with this in Matthew 25, does he not? How did he separate the sheep from the goats? Based on how they lived, their ethics. What was interesting is did the sheep know what they were doing? Nope, they just did it because it was the right thing to do. Now, the goats interestingly said, well, tag gum, we'd have been nicer. 
right? We would have not been first fist of God, Kennesaw, if we'd have only known it was you, Jesus, that was in prison and sick and looked like you were guilty of sin, as the Jewish mind would think. And so it's important that we keep this in right orientation because Paul, remember, they read the whole letter. So they would have heard, which is coming in a few weeks, that there is none who does good. There is none who is righteous apart from Jesus. So he's not violating his own principle here. What he's doing is something beautiful and rhetorical before he even gets there. He's actually setting the Jews up. He's actually setting them up to kind of draw closer and say, oh, Now we can be distinguished by our works. But notice what he does beautifully and masterfully in so few words. Listen to what he says. He says, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Here's where it really gets qualified. This this next piece is what's going to help us understand what he just said. He said, But for those who are self-seeking. And those essentially who suppress the truth in disobedience and unrighteousness, wrath, and and so forth. So, So selfishness cannot be ever a part of our works. And you may just think, well, how the heck is that supposed to work out? Because everything I do is kind of a mixed bag. I start out in the right place, but I find myself wanting to be elevated because I've done something good. I find myself wanting somebody to recognize how humble and righteous I am. What's the benefit if nobody ever tells me? i got good news for you. This is why Paul says what he says here. He says, with patience in well-doing. Now, if I had a briefcase with $100,000 in it, and I came up to Robbie and I said, Robbie, you got to be patient. I got $100,000 for you, and I handed it to him immediately. Would it not be confusing as to what, where's the patience part play into that? If there is immediate payoff for the things that we do, why would Paul have to tell us you're going to have to be patient? And who all is Paul telling us to be patient with? Notice he doesn't qualify So who all might we have to be patient with in our well-doing? Well, first, yourself. Because of that fractured line that goes down through your heart, right? You're still some mix of saint-sinner. You are going to oftentimes, with the best of intentions, do the most hellish of things as it turns out, for the most hellish of reasons. You, at times, are going to be tempted by sin. I've got good news for you. Scripture makes it clear there's a way out. There's only a need for a way out if you would potentially get drawn in, right? So this is, you're going to need to be patient with yourself on this topic. You're also going to need to be patient with others. How many of you would say, love is easy? Is it not? I mean, God is love, and I mean, love is just, just be likable, right? I've tried it. People think I'm a serial killer whenever I try to be likable. It doesn't, it just comes off weird. It may have something to do with I, I, I widen my eyes a lot because I think that's likable. Turns out it's not. A plastered mask of a grin is actually scary to people, right? So, so we've got to be patient with ourselves, and we've got to be patient with those we seek to love because they too are mixed 
of saint, sinner, or all sinner. And if you're going to try to love someone, you're going to have to start with being patient. This is not going to pay off immediately, and no ticker tape parade is going to be unfurled for you doing what you were supposed to do. Sometimes you get recognized, and that's a gift from the Lord. A lot of times you don't. And the Lord would say, that's even better, because you getting recognized is actually more dangerous than you not, actually, because of the sin in you. And so this need for patience is very important. And notice what he says next. What is the well-doing that we're going to do? Well, it's to seek for glory and honor. Whose? If the selfish are the ones who store up wrath for themselves, whose glory and honor is this for? Well, you biblical scholars ought to know that there are two. The first is who? Who deserves glory and honor above all? okay, you can speak out. I saw someone point upward. I'm going to take that as God. <laughs> Last service, we determined if you kick over a turvis, that's the same thing as amen. So we got, we got options for answering. And so, so God deserves glory and honor above all. And we do so by loving him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Is that something that's easy or does that require some patience? Because God can be silent sometimes, can he not? God can sometimes send uh, send a storm of suffering in your life that you don't understand. You may say, "We, we have to be patient with God? Yes, we who are finite must be patient with the infinite because we don't understand how and why he does what he does, often. And as Habakkuk and other prophets would teach us, we have the liberty to actually tell him about it sometimes. Because we know that he, if we stand our watch, will answer us at some point, but maybe not the way we would like. We also have to, for glory and honor, love our neighbors as we love ourselves, the two great commandments, yes? And so we are to work in patience and well-doing for their glory and honor, which means they are the ones who get elevated. They are the ones who get recognized, not you, not me. Not now. And by reminder from our Revelation series, what is, and you can answer out loud, what is the bride of Christ clothed in at the marriage supper of the Lamb from Revelation 19? The righteousness of the saints. I would love it if we started saying our righteousness. Because we are saints who confess that Jesus, and now you may say, well, wait a minute now, but isn't it, That feels, shouldn't we say that it's really the righteousness of Christ? Yes, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us that allows us to do good works that are acceptable to God in this world that have eternal implications. Amen. We've been invited into the work of the kingdom. Now, some of you may be thinking, all right, so how do I know what an eternal work is? Well, guess what you've just done? You've lost the narrative in some measure, if you're not careful, Because you could quickly make that about who? You. Are we to be keeping score? No. If you're wondering, well, well, at least what constitutes an eternal work? Well, let's go back to what we just talked about. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind has eternal implications, and and it stinks of eternity. To love your neighbor as yourself without without 
any kind of want back for yourself, that has eternal implications. To stay when you want to go, whether that's marriage or job or any other circumstance, oftentimes that has eternal implications when it feels like nothing is happening. Sometimes the patient perseverance and loving someone over the long haul is the most important work you'll ever do. I've said this often. Sometimes my best pastoring is when my mouth is closed and I'm not involved. I don't like that either. But it's actually better for me because you have any idea of the monster that I would become if given the kind of flattery that my heart yearns for outside of Jesus? I don't want you to ever tell me that was purely rhetorical. Don't kick over a turvis. Everybody remain calm. I can tell you it, it would be horrible. I would be horrible. And praise be to God that that is not what he grants me. Oftentimes what I get is I will have told somebody something as clearly as I know how to say it in English uh, a number of times. They'll pull up at a red light. Some guy will pull up, roll his window down, yell out the same words and go, why hasn't anybody ever told me this? That's the smartest thing I've ever heard. And I'm like, I, so what matters more, that they finally got what they needed or that I was recognized for being the first to say it? That they got what they needed. Who cares about that kind of recognition? But we do, right? We wrestle with it. And praise be to God that we can run to the throne of grace to receive the mercy and the help that we need in that kind of trouble. And so eternal works are when we love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. And all of the different and various creative and beautiful and mundane and magnificent ways we do that. Take heart. You can do this. And it's always when you're focused outward, not focused on self. It's okay for children to make noise. We know they're alive. That's my amen track. And so, not only are we to be concerned with the glory and honor of others, but what about this issue of immortality? Whose immortality are we to be concerned with? If it's not about self, whose is it? Others. If you have been given the greatest gift of all in being redeemed in Jesus, how can you improve upon that? You can't. This is why we must be concerned with the coming generations. We must be concerned with our friends and neighbors. We must care about the fact that we have offended others. We must care about the fact that others feel offended, regardless if, if we understand why. I've got a circumstance right now with a family member who is not talking to me, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, and they're being silly. I know you were shocked, Ruth, that I would feel that way. But... If that family member feels isolated and cut off, what should be my main concern? Being right? Making sure they know yet again that they are wrong and they can't see it straight to save their lives. Is that going to bring them in? Is that going to bring you in? No. I've got to swallow that and care more about what, what are we going to do going forward, regardless of why. And I don't need to jot and tittle even though I want to. I'm a lawyer at heart. I don't know if y'all know that. I, I would be a, a fantastic prosecutor, mean as a rattlesnake. I'd probably be a great defense guy too, just because arguing works both ways, does it not? Just depends on what you've decided on. And so, so I want to be right. Am I not right in Jesus? Is that not enough for me? Why do I need that earthly confirmation instead of reconciliation? 
And so I need to be concerned because this person doesn't know Jesus. And to have one more Christian tell them how wrong and foolish they are about everything they think they see probably ain't going to get them there. And there may be a place where certain things must be addressed directly, but only when there's reconciliation and a bridge built, yes? And so here, what Paul is saying is, as ambassadors of reconciliation, we need to be patient and well-doing because we are already saved. Remember who he's talking to. He's not talking to unsaved Jews. He's not talking to unsaved Gentiles. He's talking to people who've made a profession of faith. And he's trying to help them get the cart and the horse in the right order. And notice, as he turns from those things, he makes it very clear that to be selfish and suppress the truth of God according to our own truth, or our own, it's better said, our own perspective, that we would recognize that is a very dangerous place to be. And praise be to God, he makes it that clear. You know when you're being selfish. You know when it's about you. You know when you have seen something clear in God's word and you're deciding to brush it aside in favor of your own way because it makes life easier for you. That's dangerous ground. This is why we have to take sin seriously. We have to take God's word seriously. We cannot make it unclear where it has been clear. But where it has been very clear is who we are. Ambassadors of reconciliation who are to offer the hope of the gospel to all in our spheres of influence without nuance. That is, that is inarguable. We try to figure out ways around that, don't we? Subtly. We try to make it, well, wait a minute now. Cameron, that's your job. That's what you get paid to do. Nope. That's not what I get paid to do, actually. What I get paid to do is equip you, the saints, for the work of what? The ministry, which is what? Reconciliation of all kinds, right? And so not all of us are called in the same way. This is the beauty of being different parts of the church. Not all of us are, you're not called to do it alone, which is a great uh, fact that we are together. This is what Paul's trying to get them to understand as a church. You have been granted this unity in Christ that the world cannot comprehend. You look like Revelation 7, and you are dividing, you're trying to hierarchicalize, you're trying to say, I'm better than you because of this or that. You are crazy to do that. It, it robs you of everything good. This should be our concern. We should be the ones who are taking stock of who and whose we are. This is what Paul is calling them to do because the stakes are high, and God does this without partiality. Notice he says it twice. If you are going to be selfish, tribulation is coming for you because you are acting evil. Now, just to be clear here, make sure your children understand this. I want to make sure you understand this. Is he talking about one individual act? You stubbed your toe. You took the Lord's name in vain. That's not what he's talking about, is it? What's he talking about here? He's talking about an identity. He's talking about what you have become or are becoming. He's talking about relationship. Who are you in relationship with? If you're in relationship with him, you have access to all the means of grace. See, some of the best work you will ever do is admit you were wrong. <laughs> That's eternal work. 
(laughs) from the start. See, remember, what was your first confession in some measure? Why would you say you needed Jesus if you weren't wrong about a whole bunch of stuff? And when did that stop being the case since your ways are not God's ways and your thoughts are not God's thoughts? When did we cease to need to, in humility, say, I am wrong or I don't know? You know, that's one of the greatest things you can say to some of your friends and neighbors who just expect Christians to think that they understand geology because they read Genesis 1 and 2. That they understand science completely and don't need those foolish scientists to do those tests and things of that nature. We have the Bible. Try getting in an airplane with that attitude. Right? It was physics that got you in the air that the Lord made. It's knowledge that he gave to us. But does the Bible say anything about flight? Ken, who's a resident pilot. He says, no, he would rather fly based on what folks have figured out otherwise. It is okay. Remember, God said to the Gentiles, it is because of what you see in the world. It is because of what God has created in addition to Scripture. It all fits together. Do not get me wrong, there's no contradiction. But I think there are times we try to press things into a lane it doesn't belong. I am not despite the fact that I have a physical therapy degree, an epidemiologist, or a virologist. I'm slightly dangerous because I know what some of those terms mean when I've read a couple of articles. I'm also not a political scientist or sociologist. But man, I like to go on about it, don't I? So we have to be careful. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to say we don't know. It's okay to say that's not my field. But what we ought to know is who and whose we are, and that's what the world needs to know above all. And we have the opportunity to do that in and through the relationships that we have with others. But mainly, it rises out of our relationship with God himself. Amen? So it's important that we keep good works in its right place. Remember Ephesians 2? Most people can quote all the way up to verse 10. They don't ever really quote verse 10. So so 1 through 10 basically says, look, you've been saved by God's grace alone, full stop. And you cannot claim any work for salvation lest anybody would be able to boast, full stop. Now, what does verse 10 say? You are welcome to look it up. I've got time, place is rented, unless you know it off the top of your head roughly. I'll take a rough approximation. Dave, I think you're awake for that part of the last service, so you can't answer. What's that? Four good works. Now, what Michael Leitner said is that we are God's workmanship, which means who did the creating? Who made us into what we are in Christ? God did. And the purpose that he did that for is for the good works that we would live out that he has prepared beforehand. So do works matter? Yes. Where? After salvation. How we live matters. Now, we are currently not enjoying being judged summarily by just about every riven corner of culture and society at current. 
And you may say, and rightly so, well, aren't we in opposition to the world? Yes, sooner or later, as R.C. Sproul once said, if we try to step off our reservation, which the world has created for us, and do the good works to which God has called us, we will be met with a, a snarl and a sword. The benign smile will go away. However, should we make it justifiable? Should we make it easy? See, we ought to make it such they got to lie about us. But they ain't got to lie about us at current. See, they had to lie about Jesus. Why? They had to make stuff up. He was all the time going around doing all kinds of stuff. But they had to lie. Because his character, even the world could appreciate if left untainted. They should have to lie about us. So don't think that it doesn't matter what the world thinks about who we are. Because remember what Francis Schaeffer said about John 15, where it says the world's going to know who we are by what? Love we have for one another. Schaefer had a great way of putting that. He says, that's actually God granting the world judgment of the church, small j, not big j, but present judgment. And they will judge us and have and do. I've got good news for you. That's not the end of the story. We don't fear the world's judgment, but again, we shouldn't make it easy for them to dismiss and disregard us out of hand. This is a tension, is it not? Because we have a responsibility if we are to be the most creative and hopeful people in the room who take sin the most seriously. What does that mean we sometimes have to tell folks? What you're doing is going to kill you. Doesn't it take an enormous amount of love to say that and then keep standing there and say, and I don't want to see you die. And I would rather spend an eternity with you than see you perish. How much love does that take? Knowing it could go a lot of different ways when they come back at us. See, we like to tell the stories where it's successful quickly, but again, why would you have to be patient and well-doing if sometimes that ain't going to result in them coming with a snarl and a sword? But again, what matters is not the results necessarily directly. It matters, did you and were you faithful? And too often, we try to take that tension out of the equation. We want it to go all one way or the other. Either we want to be first fist of God or God loves you, whatever. But that's not what we're called to either end of that spectrum. Paul here is making it clear where works should fit for us. Listen to what John Stott says about this. <laughs> he says, such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed. So he's referring to when God comes in judgment, right? He said, it'll require public and verifiable evidence to support them. This is our good works. This is revealing who and whose we are. Somebody ought to be able to tell you're a Christian, not just based on you always being good and smiling and joyous and never talking about sin, but being one of the first people to repent, one of the first people to say you were wrong, one of the first people to seek reconciliation when there's anything going on. He says, and the only public evidence available will be our works. What have we done and, ha and have been seen to do? This pres the presence or absence of a saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. The apostles, Paul and James, both teach this same truth. 
that authentic faith is invariably issued in good works and that if not, it is bogus, even dead. See, that statement was so rough that Luther had to kick James out of the Bible. He couldn't live with it. But he didn't kick Paul out, which I find interesting because they say the same thing. Jesus said it too, as, as I remind you. So it's important for us to take assessment of our own hearts. So what do your words and deeds reveal about the nature of your relationship to God? And you may say, well, Cameron, I, I don't know. I can't go doing that because then I, I, I'll discover how great I am, potentially. What a risk that could run. But why does Paul say, I don't need you to judge me because I've done it myself. I've looked at my own works and deeds. We should take stock periodically. Even the psalmist asks the Holy Spirit to show him his anxiety and his darkness. Are you willing to do the same? It is okay in humility to take joy in where God has invited you and where you have honored him. That is not problematic. It's tricky. And you'll need to grow in it and you'll need to cultivate it in maturity, in Jesus. You'll always need to come back to the gospel on this one, won't you? Either because you'll take stock and realize there ain't a whole lot in the cupboard or where there is, it's gonna be hard for you to not to smile and think yourself more than you are. So the gospel helps balance that out. And if you're loath to do it, ask those nearest you to do it for you. And if you are too scared to ask them the truth, well, that tells you quite a bit, doesn't it, about the condition of your heart. Why would you be afraid to ask those who love you most what could actually help you grow in Jesus? And then take stock of how might your words and deeds be affecting those who don't currently believe that are in your spheres of influence. See, this is pretty universal. Everybody looks at the words and deeds and compares them to confessions. Some are more honest about it than others. Some are more willing to stand under it than others. But it's what we all do. And we should take stock of that, right? And even pay attention to how they speak of us and how they trust us in times of need or don't. It is a very humbling thing to have people come to you knowing that you are the only person in an entire facility that they would trust to pray for their dying father. And they don't believe. Now, is that the occasion to go, listen, I ain't praying. I hope he smells like sulfur. And you're going to too because you don't believe. Would that be the right way to handle that? No. That's not the time for that. What a sacred thing that somebody for just a brief moment would trust. And who knows what the Lord might do with that good work that you be patient in. There's many more like it that we could speak to. See, we need to be concerned about the glory and honor of the Lord as well as those around us and more importantly, their immortality. Where are they going to spend an eternity? It's not on us to save them, but just like Ezekiel, we've been tasked with letting them know. The results are not up to us, but the mission, the, the, we are the instrumentality. So are you willing to do that? Are you willing to be that? Are you willing to recognize where good works ought land? And it's not anything you need to add to your life. It's a leveraging of what you already have. You are already in the midst of plenty. 
The, the harvest in your circumstances is plentiful and growing more plentiful all the time as we shift more and more post-Christian. And are you willing to step into the harvest because the workers are so few? They were few when Jesus started. So Romans 2, 6 through 11 teaches us that how we live in word and deed reveals the nature of our relationship to God. It just does. And what's yours revealing? Again, it's not about being perfect. If you, if you are messing up, which way you run reveals that relationship, doesn't it? That is a good work for you to go again and taste and see that the Lord is good and forgiving you. Because nobody's keeping score. You shouldn't either. It is a, a beautiful thing when temptation comes and though you wrestle and you think, I should no longer be tempted. Well, you will only no longer be tempted when you are when you are in Christ in full and glorification. Between now and then, you will struggle. And that struggle is not evidence that you are not in Christ. The fact that there's a struggle is evidence that you are. Even when you fail. Which way do you run? And then how do we treat people in those same circumstances around us? Are we quick to go with them to the throne, to carry them if they need be carried? Or do we shoot our wounded and kick them while they're down? So would you join me, church, in seeking to put good works in its right place biblically? That it would be what comes from and is fruit born of our relationship to Jesus. That it is not something that we in our own strength confide, because that would be losing, would it not? And would you join me in being desirous of seeing those who don't know Jesus glorified and honored above us? That they would go on to do more than we could do that the coming generations would take what we have built and built greater upon it. And that we would desire the immortality of others, that that would be our greatest concern. Right? So let's pray for that. And then as we sing this last song here in just a moment, that you would sing as those who recognize they are forgiven and have been given so much. And that we would leave here emboldened by the truth and beauty of the gospel wanting to join in the good work that God is doing in this fallen world. Let's pray. Father, thank you <clears throat> that you have been so gracious to us, that you don't let our works selfishly build us up, that you are quick to lay the ax to the root of that tree in Christ and to remind us that we have been saved in, by your grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, that we, we cannot boast but that's not the end of the story. Actually, that's the entryway. And that we've been invited into a, an everlasting kingdom that has eternal implications where every word and deed can actually affect eternity. That it can beautify the bride, that it could change someone's eternity. It could be the, a, a, an instrument of changing someone's eternity, though it is not in our power to render it so. You can, Lord. And that even our mistakes can serve in some form or fashion, as part of your redemption and reconciliation, thank you that nothing is missing or lost or meaningless because of who and whose we are. Help us to live in such a way that the world knows who and whose we are, even if that brings suffering for a season. Oftentimes, how we respond to that suffering can be the instrument by which they are drawn into the kingdom. Help us suffer well for your glory, for their glory and honor and immortality. Lord, would you fashion us as instruments of redemption in your hands. In Christ's name, 
Amen.